Welcome to Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This season, I'm sitting down with thought leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to look at the competing trends of ESG, pushback of anti-ESG, all with an eye to what's coming next and how companies can chart a consistent course that's responsive, but not reactionary. Today, Adam and Teen's environmental justice expert, Latoria Sims, co-hosts with me. And we speak with Matthew Tejada, Deputy Assistant Administrator for EJ at EPA's Office of Environmental Justice and External Civil Rights. Matthew has a really interesting way of conveying these topics that I think you're going to love. He has a BA in English from the University of Texas at Austin. He has a Master of Philosophy in Russian and East European Studies from Oxford, as well as a PhD in Modern History. Before the launch of EPA's program, he served as the director of their Office of Environmental Justice. Before his start at EPA, Matthew was the executive director of Air Alliance Houston. You can learn more about Matthew's biography in our show notes. One thing that Matthew says in this conversation is that EJ is is often understood as scary, as a no engine. And then he paints these compelling pictures of how we can all participate in different ways that I just know you're going to find changes the way you think about these things. Here's my conversation with Latoria and Matthew Tejada. Matthew Tejada, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the Energy Things podcast. Thanks, y'all, for having me. We have a really special episode today, and my colleague, Latoria, which much of our audience knows from our writings on community engagement and environmental justice, is joining me. So, Latoria, I'd love to kick it over to you um, to ask Matthew the first question. Thank you, Tisha. Matthew, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. I've been following a lot of the WeJack meetings and the EPA meetings, a lot of which you've been a part of. Um, so I'm so excited. I'm just going to dive right in with the first question. It's been a year since the EPA has merged several programs to form the Office of Environmental Justice and External Civil Rights. What's the EPA trying to do differently around environmental justice and how do you think it's working? That's a great question. And I think it goes, I think the answer partly goes to the very fact of creating a national program within EPA, right? And that that's something that to 99.99% of the people in the United States has zero meaning to them. It would have had zero meaning to me when I was back in Houston, you know, advocating at the community level for EJ and public health issues. But from being inside of the government, it's momentous because fundamentally what we are trying to do with environmental justice is change the systems and structures of government to be more equitable and just. And actually creating a national program of environmental justice and external civil rights is by its very nature, tangible structural change, right? It elevated our programs, environmental justice, civil rights, as well as our alternative dispute resolution program, it elevated us into being co-equals with the other 
traditional main parts of the structure of environmental public health protection, not just at EPA and headquarters, and not just within the structure of EPA at headquarters, but throughout the federalist system of environmental public health protection. So the states, local governments, it sent a very clear signal throughout the system that in order for us to achieve our shared mission of protecting the environments and public health of all communities in the United States, you can't just worry about air, you can't just worry about water, you can't just worry about you know land and emergency response. You also have to think about justice and civil rights as core parts of our mission achievement. So it really is that, that structural systemic change happening in front of our eyes in a more fundamentally significant way than it ever has. You know, and a lot of a lot of previous administrations really laid the precedent for us to be able to make this change happen now, thinking especially of a lot of the work that happened under Administrator Lisa Jackson back in kind of the 2009 to 2013 timeframe. This is a huge step beyond that. And it really you know, it, it it didn't fundamentally alter how we view the specific mission of EJ at EPA, but it gives us so much more clout, right? When we walk into the room with the air program and with the water program and with all of our other colleagues, when we engage with state agencies, when we're talking to local governments, when we're when we're working through our nation-to-nation -nation responsibility with tribal governments. It brings us in as a fundamental part of our agency, of our government, in a much clearer and stronger way. Matthew, you paint such a picture of a system, a system that is elevating the voices of communities and elevating the role of justice and civil rights. Let's talk about a very specific aspect of that, which is a lot of our audiences, oil and gas companies that we work with to ensure that they have an EJ strategy in place that will engage in a meaningful way with communities. From your seat, what are things that companies in oil and gas or adjacent, we call it oil and gas adjacent, the carbon capture sequestration, hydrogen, renewable fuels, things like that. What are some aspects that you have observed or that you anticipate that they often overlook in their in their thinking and their planning about this component of, of community work? Sure. So, so a few things. I mean, one of the things that I think is a real area that is an area that it could be improved upon in terms of understanding and integrating EJ in the, in, in the energy sector, it, it's simple to understand, but it's hard to do. And this is something that isn't just hard for you know oil and gas or the private sector or anybody. It's hard to do in government as well is to really make the authentic commitment to doing the first step of environmental justice, which is actual building of trusting relationships with the impacted community, right? It, it took us decades to figure out that not only do we need to ask the community what they think about something, but when we ask them, we can't do it at the shiny glass building downtown on a Wednesday afternoon because nobody's gonna go there. Right, that we actually have to meet the community on their terms in a place that's comfortable to them and provide them the support they need to be able to engage in that conversation comfortably and confidently. But even when we're doing that today, whether it's from the government side or from the private sector, 
if you are showing up to start that process when you need it to happen, when your permit is up for renewal, when your facility is trying to expand, when you are trying to build a new property somewhere, if you're showing up when you need it, you have already failed, right? It is about building the relationship. It is about being there for the community when they need you to be there. It is about being more than a good neighbor. Good neighbors are fine. Industry can't just be a good neighbor, right? Industry has to be a member of that community. And that means showing up for that community in ways and at times that not only are not maybe in the industry's immediate interest, sometimes might be that stuff that industry still finds really threatening. You know, there's not there's not an EJ community out there that doesn't have a need for for support for health. Right. And it is so hard to get polluting industries to even have a legitimate conversation about, well, how can we get more health care to these folks in ways that they need? You know, which is really a problem because so many of these communities are amongst the most unserved or underserved and uninsured in the United States. So being willing to really show up for the community when they need it, in the ways that they need it, and speak out, you know, in support of what the community wants to see happen, right? Whether that is more air monitoring in ways that communities want the air monitoring to happen, not the ways that the, that the company maybe wants the air monitoring to happen, for healthcare, for healthy food, for they're about to close down our last bus stop because nobody rides it very much. And the community is not going to be able to convince, you know, the city or the metro agency to not do that. I guarantee you, because I actually, when I, you know, I actually lived through that experience in Houston. And we fought so hard for folks not to lose their bus stop in one community that was surrounded by refineries and chemical plants. And it was so hard doing that. And if industry had shown up, we wouldn't even have to send an email, right? Industry could have walked in the room to Metro and said, don't do that. Don't you get it? And I mean, it is the 800 pound gorilla. So just showing up in those ways, I think very few industries, very few companies are willing to do. I think more are more clearly seeing the gap between where they're at and where they need to be. And some might even be tentatively kind of dipping their toes in the water of more authentic relationship building. But it's going to have to continue to, to evolve and to, to do so at greater pace and with greater meaningfulness. And I think the last thing I would offer, you know, to encourage more folks on the private side to do that, so often environmental justice is seen as this big, scary topic. It's seen as this big no machine. It's seen as a fight. It's seen as a conflict. And that's not unwarranted. EJ is a tough space, right? There's going to be conflict. There's going to be fight. There's certainly going to be many communities that rightfully are just done. They are tired and they want you to get the hell out, right? And there's nothing you can really say about that. I still think it means you have to keep going back and back and back again to try to build that relationship, no matter if you're government or industry or anybody else. But for the most part, 
in the communities I've dealt with throughout my career, most of the communities understand that there's facilities around where they live. They live near the water. They live on that side of town. They live near highways. They live near railroad tracks. They know those companies aren't going anywhere anytime soon. They know that they can potentially benefit from those companies being in their communities. Most folks, from my experience, they really want a couple of things. They want to know that they and their families aren't being harmed by those companies, and they want to know it for themselves. They don't want the companies to tell them they're not being harmed. They don't want me and the government to tell them that they're not being harmed. They want to know it for themselves. And providing the support for communities to know it for themselves is an act of bravery that, again, I'm seeing some starting to figure out how to maybe be brave, and we need a lot more to be brave, to help communities know for themselves that they're not being harmed. The other thing that communities need, and this goes back to being you know, not just a good neighbor, but a member of that community, is the community needs to know how they're benefiting. Because the company's not there to not benefit, right? The, co the company's there making money. The company's there doing the thing it needs to do. But how is the community benefiting? And a kind of banal tax base or buying jerseys for the football team or restocking the library, that just doesn't cut it, right? Communities really want to know how are we benefiting? How are we getting better? How, are, how is our health protected? How are our schools good? How do we have entrepreneurship? How are we having wealth creation and retention? How is our community going to be a better, safer, more prosperous place to live? And what you company are, what are you going to do in a transparent and accountable way to make that happen? So I think that's, I think, I, I think again, a lot of, not a lot, some companies I think are seeing this, many more need to, and everyone needs to make more progress at actually making it happen. Matthew makes so many great points, and I want to put an exclamation point on a few of them. <laughs> One is just the way historically companies have engaged with communities has been, this is what we're going to do. Tell us your concerns, and we'll figure out how to mitigate them. And, and you're laying out very clearly, and it's very consistent with our work. That's a thing of the past that will never return. <laughs> a, a second thing is the idea that the engagement with the communities is kind of this superficial window dressing. Like we're going to do these things and you're going to like them. And what you're describing is a real paradigm shift to invited guests. Like first you have to be an invited guest before you can be a, a partner. And I think that's really important. And then, and the, the last thing, which I just cannot put a big enough emphasis on for our listeners is this idea that central to this work is trust. And because companies tend to be dominated by scientists and engineers, and for many, many moons, we have confused education with engagement. And instead, now we're we're pivoting to a model of listening, of absorbing, of being patient, and of building rapport and trust and understanding that the answer, there's not, at the end of the day, the answer is not yes, that yes has to be earned. And so I just, I think what you're saying is is very articulate, very important, and and I wanted to contrast it with some historic ways we, we've done things. Do you think that's a fair caricature? 
Absolutely. And, and, and to put a little more nuance to it, because as we've been talking, I was reflecting, I, I've actually just in the last week, I have spent time both with a collection of, of refiners and a collection of, of chemical folks here in D.C. Folks were having in-person meetings and I went and spent time with representatives of those industries. And so some of what I'm saying today is reflected upon our, my conversations I've had with them. And, I, you know, I sat in a room and, and there was a human being across the table from me that I've visited with before who was just adamant. He's like, we're trying. My like, he, he was referencing this one specific facility. I know the facility. And he's like, you know, we've done this. We've done that. Like, we're trying. And, 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 and then people still get mad at us. And I, I wanted to say, I know you're trying. I can I can see in your eyes that you're a human being who gets who's trying to get it and you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to be concerned. And I wanted to say, but you're an engineer. <laughs> right? Everyone else in that room was a lawyer. And until and 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 this isn't to, you know, denigrate that. Those are important professions, right? We need those professions. We have plenty of lawyers and engineers and scientists at EPA. That's almost all we have. It's a problem because, and again, this is this is you know not just pointing a finger at the private sector or any part of the private sector because it, it's still a huge problem in government. Until we start to understand that equity and justice work, that building trusting relationships, that really having the bravery to have the conversation in the boardroom, as well as in the hearing room, as well as just on the street corner, it is its own skill. It is its own profession. And until we start valuing and investing in that within all of our organizations, whether they're public or for-profit or nonprofit, until we start doing that, and if we and we keep sending, you know, the engineer out there on a Wednesday night or your baby lawyers out there on a Saturday morning to be eaten alive until we stop doing that, we're, we're not going to actually start to build those trusting relationships. You've got to invest in equity and justice within your own operations as a precedent to actually being able to do this work in an authentic way. I really appreciate and agree with that sentiment. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about a company that is investing in people on the ground who are invited or at least considered to be relevant members of the community. What are some things they're doing right? I'm not going to, I'm not gonna, I'm obviously not going to uh, call out anybody specifically, right? But there are efforts out there to really look at, okay, how can industry start putting its own money into air quality monitoring? with more trusted partners, you know, where they are giving up some of the control and power that they would traditionally have when they do monitoring on their own. That is an act of bravery. It's not enough all on its own, but it, you know, I acknowledge that that is a, that is a brave step in the right direction for industry to be willing to put up its own money to do something that creates a vulnerability or, or has in the past been perceived as a vulnerability, right? Putting more information in the hands of folks out in the community. That's a huge thing. There are other sectors kind of, you know, close to energy sector, but not, not directly within it, that I've seen that they're, they're actually putting together their own EJ strategies within their sector. And they're, they're, they're asking themselves the tough questions you know, how far will we go for this not to just be window dressing, right? What 
What policies are we really going to think about changing? What goals are we going to set to change the way we operate in ways that will make those communities safer, healthier places to live while we are still able to pursue our bottom line, right? How are we going to actually start hiring, as I was just saying, the folks that actually know how to do this, the folks that are skilled in equity and justice work. And, and, and that is happening. There are Fortune 100 companies out there now hiring folks for equity and justice leads at, at senior positions within their companies. It's going to take time. It's going to take learning. There's going to have to be growth of, of just individuals in that space, you know, working in the private sector in authentic ways on equity and justice work, because there's there's going to be a lot of mistrust of folks that know how to do equity and justice work from entering into that in, in a really authentic way where, where there's going to be some trust that it's for real. But those are some of the things that I really look at and celebrate and have been really kind of excited about recently, especially just in the last couple of years. I think I've engaged with the private sector more in the last couple of years than I had since I left Houston. In fact, I know I have. And there are really honest to goodness, tough, meaningful conversations happening. One of my biggest fears is that from the private side, you know, a lot of folks might think that as soon as this administration is out, you know, they can just move on to the next thing, right? That this is just the flavor of the month. And, and I really hope that folks understand, and I sincerely believe that that just is not going to be the case, right? Because in so many ways, the things that this administration has done to lift up and prioritize equity and justice issues has been kind of raising the floor while a lot of other folks are raising the ceiling, whether that are individual states who are now actually putting laws on the books that are going to force this sort of a reckoning for a lot of private sector polluting companies, whether that is ESG and the rise of you know a lot more awareness and thoughtfulness on the investment side of where capital goes and who it goes to and how they behave to the workers in a lot of these companies, or the fact that you know, communities themselves with, with a lot of the funding that is available today, with the advances in technology and science that is putting science more easily in the hands, more readily in the hands of more people, the landscape of industry, of, of manufacturing, of extraction, and the impacts of those industries on communities is going to evolve rapidly in the next several years. And the longer that private companies try to wait this out for the next political cycle or think that this just isn't going to be a thing, I think only is going to make their problem exponentially harder when it is finally forced upon them, either by a state or an action or a community that just gets organized to the point that they can't deny it anymore. Matthew, I really love that you stated that environmental justice is not going anywhere. It's, it's here to stay. And we're going to continue to make strides in the progress toward justice. With that in mind, and I know that the EPA has made progress. Tell us some of your priorities, your EJ priorities for the next few months. I'm trying to spend $3 billion. That is my priority right now. I never imagined 
I've been in this position more or less. I mean, the name of my position has changed, but I've, I've been in this job for over 10 and a half years now. And what has happened in the last, you know, really just the last 14 months, right? Or when was it? September, August of 2022. It's now October of 2023. We have expanded by three orders of magnitude in terms of our funding, which is exciting. It is the first time ever in government, not just in the United States, but the first time in government, in the history of humankind, that we have real funding at the same time that we have real political support to start not only changing the systems and structures of governance, but to try to do so in an equitable way where we're providing support at the community grassroots level to community-driven partnerships that include local governments and tribes and state governments and others, but to provide the support out on the ground while the government is trying to change its systems and structures is so incredibly powerful. And there are, I mean, I could spend 80 hours a week having every single one of my meetings, every single minute of my effort focused on you know, the internal changes to the system and structure, to the policy discussions, to the hiring, to the organizational development. And I still spend quite a bit of my time doing that right now. But to me, the thing that is going to be lasting, the thing that is going to set the horizon of our possibilities is going to be getting that funding out on the ground to communities and their partners because they are not only the ones that can, but they are the ones that should be innovating what that horizon looks like. They are the ones that should be in a position to have the power to demand that the government need it where the community is at, right? Not the community having to travel to where the government is at. And so getting that support in different ways you know, whether it's a community that's just starting out and they need some really basic help, right? They need to know how to incorporate a nonprofit. They need to know how to talk to their city. They need $100,000 just to start getting the community educated so that they actually can start, you know, meeting with their partners and discussing the issues, whether it's communities that are in that place or whether it's those communities that are, you know, they know what their issues are, they have the state and the city and, and an academic institution, everyone else ready to go. But God, they just need $15 million. If they had $15 million, there'd be no more excuses, right? All those little gaps that exist, especially in communities that have been underinvested in for generations, that have been dumped upon for decades, they need some of that capital to start that engine. And so we're going to be providing that capital here in the next couple of months. And so doing that and seeing literally, you know, thousands engines starting in communities across the United States to really drive the development of those real authentic collaborative partnerships. And everything we do in the environmental justice program at EPA is about supporting collaborative partnerships organized around the community to solve issues, right, to fix problems to make people healthier, to make their communities better, safer places to live so that they can develop their economy, so that they can be happy, prosperous communities. 
right? The thousands of places that we have a chance right now to start making that happen in a real way. I think if we can do that, that is what is going to drive us forward at the federal level and across the other levels of government for decades to come. I agree. And that's exciting times for environmental justice. And I'm happy to see you guys making those measures toward environmental justice. So early in your career, you spent time as an environmental advocate. So you understand how it feels to be in that role, working for a nonprofit, advocating on behalf of of the community. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges and some of the biggest priorities for community justice advocates? One of the biggest challenges is one of the simplest thing for everyone else to just get over it and accept, right? That folks that come from the community, they might see the world differently than you do, right? They might understand science differently than you do. They might have a different interpretation of what their risks are and how they're being overburdened. And because it's different doesn't make it wrong, In many cases, especially when you're thinking about some of our more historic communities or when you're thinking about indigenous communities, their science is a hell of a lot older than yours and is funded in a lot more actual experiential research than you will ever be able to accumulate with all of your PhDs or whatever else. So folks understanding that whether it is, you know, a highly trained EJ advocate or just somebody who is, you know, willing to step out of their front door to demand that they and their family and their community be treated with respect and be treated with justice, they need to be heard, right? And they get a place at the table. And it doesn't matter if they show up and and they're hollering and they're bringing a lot of energy to that room. That's okay. That's their right. They get their place at the table and they're going to be heard. That's not anything special, right? None of us want to live in a place where we're not heard. None of us want to live in a community where things are done to it and you don't have anything to say about it. None of us want to live in that place. And that's what communities with EJ concerns want. They want to be heard. They want to have a say in what happens to their community. And doesn't matter what they look like, doesn't matter what their education is, doesn't matter what their language, uh, what language they speak is, their reality, their perspective, their needs, their desires, their demands are all at least as legitimate as everyone else's in that room. And especially when you're talking about what's actually happening in community, I would argue they are more legitimate because none of us want to live in a community where our needs and desires aren't legitimized. I think some of the priorities, right, are are really about what I was just describing about about changing that that balance of power, where for so long communities didn't have to be dealt with, or even if you know, like back when I was in Houston, CBPR, community based participatory research, was a really big thing, right? Like so, so suddenly there were all these researchers out there that they needed community folks in order to get their grants, or or there were these initiatives in previous administrations where like, well, there had to be community input and then we would get the five million dollars from, you know, department of whoever. And I was I, I lived through a lot of that. Right. I, I was welcomed in. I was given a seat. I was my voice was heard until the check showed up and suddenly I never heard from anybody again. Right. So changing that balance of power where. It's not just we're heard on the front end until the business gets going, but actually being able to call the shot on the business getting going, actually being able to be 
the principal investigator or the the critical component actually being the one that that makes the work happen that sets the policy agenda that that says whether or not something's been successful or not and really putting the community in the place to to call that shot again that's going to take that's going to scare the hell out of a lot of people it scares the hell out of almost every single one of my colleagues i know i live it every single day but achieving that place where the community really is it, you know, not just sitting at the table, but sitting at the head of the table and the rest of us arrange ourselves around their table. I think that is in a higher level sense, kind of the priority of a lot of folks uh, who are out there working on this type of work. Matthew, you're offering us a vision of recentering the conversation around the community voice. And then you're also painting, I think, a very inspiring picture of a thousand engines that are going to build capacity for those communities to take advantage of of this shift, this structural shift that's underway right now, which I find just extremely compelling. And so I, I want to end by asking you the question I ask all my guests, which is, what are you most optimistic about? It can be in this work or really in anything. Yeah, I think I think the thing I'm most optimistic about, you know, and I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, even with, you know, politics being what politics is and, you know, people trying to politicize things that really aren't political. We're talking about really basic, you know, human beings being human to one another, communities being treated like all of us would want to be treated, respecting the past that has occurred and the facts of the past that have occurred. We've got, you know, political leadership in the White House that acknowledges those things. We've got money we've never seen before. But the thing I'm most, I guess, optimistic about is that more broadly, I think our society is in the midst of a watershed. And I've, I've hesitated for a while to, to kind of really say it as strongly as I think it deserves. But our society has been having a conversation over the last few years that it's never had before. Like even when you go back to the thick of the civil rights movement in the 60s, a lot of the issues we are talking about today that are so deeply spread and set within our society, and you can make that society as big or as little as you want. You can talk about your society locally, or you can talk about our global society and how we have such long entrenched histories of treating people differently because of what they look like or because of what language they speak or because of what faith they believe in. The fact that we're finally really opening up and embracing that conversation, even though it can be challenging, and but, but that we're doing that, right? We're having, we're continuing to have that conversation. We're seeing a lot of people kind of repel against it now, which to me, even though that's scary and disappointing, can also be a bit of a good sign because it's like, yeah, it's happening. Like people are scared of this now because you know, it, it doesn't align with some folks, you know, desires or or benefits. I think the fact that that is happening is I'm hugely optimistic about that. I'm a, and I'm especially optimistic that it's happening in a way with our younger generation that the reality of kids that are growing up in this time with such challenges, whether it's, you know, growing up in the pandemic growing up through watching Black Lives Matter and other movements take root, growing up in a very real sense that our climate is 
disastrously changing and we have no idea really what to do about it yet. But just from speaking as, as a father of a 15 year old in high school, I think that next generation is just going to be way over all this, right? So the fact that we're that we're talking about these histories, we're talking about the impact that these histories still have on human beings today and will continue to have unless we do something about it. And the fact that the younger generation is just like, yeah, that's stupid. We're going to be so done with that <laughs> when we're in charge. I so hope that we're so done with that when they're in charge. I don't totally think we will be. But I think we're finally actually dealing with some real issues in our society. And I think we're only going to continue to make better and faster progress at moving beyond those histories and treating all people equitably and justly. And maybe one day in our country, maybe one day in our country, actually treating people equally. Matthew, thank you so much for the work you do. And thank you so much for joining us today on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you, Latoria. Thank you, Tishy. It was uh, it was my pleasure. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Latoria for co-hosting with me and Matthew Tejada for joining us. I found so much interesting in this conversation, but the idea of just the sea change that's underway and the fact that I do believe it to be directional was supported through this conversation. I'll be really interested to hear what you found compelling. So I hope you'll reach out to us at energythinks.com. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to rate and review us. It helps us reach out to more listeners. I want to thank my colleague, Adon Rubio, who makes all things podcast possible. And until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.